Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of a modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wool on us. Facing and taking on all the plate to pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinize and do their lies and make them fold. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. I've now lived in Silicon Valley for almost 20 years. Uh, and while I'm generally a big supporter of startups, entrepreneurs, and innovation, if there's one thing that's really frustrated me more than just about anything else, I think, in the time that I've spent around successful entrepreneurs is how few uh, are willing to admit that luck played a role in their success. In my experience, at least, I found that young entrepreneurs who are successful on their first shot almost never credit luck. While at least those who have had a failure or two under their belts, um, they're at least a little more willing to, to recognize that luck has played a part in, in their success. And crediting luck is not to say that, that their success was pure random chance. Uh, far from it, in fact. I think obviously hard work, good ideas, brilliant execution all play a role in being successful. But luck is a part of that as well. Uh, I've certainly known plenty of entrepreneurs who worked hard and had great ideas and were brilliant at executing, but they didn't always succeed for one reason or another. And one way that I've heard some frame it is that all of that other stuff is important so that when good luck strikes, you're actually ready to capitalize on it. But with that, without at least some good luck, it's uh, basically impossible to be successful. Uh, one person who's thought an awful lot about this lately and is on something of a mission, I think, to convince the world, uh, and especially the world's most wealthy and successful, that luck was a key component in their success, is economist and professor Robert Frank from Cornell University, who published an excellent book last year uh, that I highly recommend called Success and Luck. Uh, professor Frank is joining us on the podcast today, along with one of our usual co-hosts, Dennis Yang. Uh, but... Before Professor Frank joins us, I should note that among uh, Professor Frank's many other accomplishments, uh, he was also my Econ 101 professor uh, back when I was a freshman at Cornell in 1993. And to kick off this discussion, I do need to mention a bit of luck that I ran into in that I'm lucky I had him as a professor, not only because he was a great professor and has always influenced my thinking on economics to this day, but also since he was kind enough uh, not to fail me for what happened on his final exam, which is uh, in uh, my Econ 101 final exam in December of 1993, which was my very first final exam as a Cornell student. Um, I remember that the exam began at 9 a.m., uh, and I had stayed up late the night before studying and woke up that morning at about 9.45, uh, which, uh, if you're paying attention, would be about 45 minutes after the exam began. Uh, and I ran all the way to the building where the exam was taking place, which, if I remember correctly, there were something like 50 flights of stairs to get up to the exam room in Baker Hall. And I believe I ran into the room and was about to collapse uh, and was completely out of breath. And a, a very kind uh, teaching assistant told me to calm down and specifically not to have a heart attack. 
uh, and then they let me take the exam late. And then uh, after the exam ended for everyone else, Professor Frank very kindly walked me back across the campus to his office and gave me an extra hour or so to complete the exam. And I distinctly recall him joking with me about the marginal utility of a working alarm clock. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Professor Frank, I don't know if I ever had a chance after that to thank you for that bit of kindness. <laughs> um, so at the very least, I'd like to thank you now. And also thank you very much for joining us today on the, on the podcast. It, it's my pleasure, Mike. Yeah, no, what, what a nice story. <laughs> forgotten all about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you have no reason to remember. It's, it's um, you know, imprinted on my mind <laughs> uh, quite a bit. But um, more specifically to the, to the topic that we're discussing today, um, you know, Silicon Valley is sort of, you know, I, I, and I know your book doesn't really focus specifically on Silicon Valley, um, but, you know, just talks about success and, and, and luck in, in general. And, and, you know, you use a number of, of, you know, personal stories in that. But, you know, one of the things about Silicon Valley is that this idea of like the meritocracy, um, you know, being the, you know, be all and end all of things sort of run runs rampant around here. Um, and so I'm wondering if you've had any sort of specifically any reaction to your book from, from people in Silicon Valley and entrepreneurs in particular. Yeah, I think you see uh, really a bimodal reaction to the narrative of the book. Uh I should I should stress that uh, it's quite natural for people who've succeeded in Silicon Valley and elsewhere uh, to to construct a narrative that really does stress the hard work and the talent that they brought to the table. Uh, uh, it's rare that you see success on a grand scale where those qualities aren't present. You know, all, all those people work really hard. They solve hard problems. They get up early. They work late. And so those are those are the typical building blocks of success stories. And so if you've succeeded and you ask yourself, why was I so successful? Naturally, you're going to recruit all the readily available mem memories of the the hard work you put in and the and the formidable opponents you conquered along your path to the top. So so you're not a bad person if you think about things that way. Uh, I, I think, uh, as you said in your introduction, uh, what people don't notice as clearly is that there are lots and lots of other people who are smart, who work really hard, who executed well, but uh, things didn't fall together for them in the same way. And often it's just because some chance ingredient that was also necessary wasn't present present in their case. So, yeah, I think uh, the tendency to think you did it all yourself when you succeed uh, is very widespread. It's natural, uh, but it's harmful, I, I think. Uh, the the fact of the matter is that when people think they did it all themselves, they, they develop a very powerful sense of entitlement that every nickel that comes their way is theirs to keep. Uh, and, and so they, they become much less willing to pay forward to help fund the public investments uh, that were so important in their own struggle to succeed in the first place. So I think that that's where we can make progress. If you, if we can just get people to reflect on their paths to the top and, and, and think uh, more openly about the possibility that they, they enjoyed a few breaks along those paths, then uh, I, th I think we'll get a lot more progress. Yeah, I can see that. And it reminds me a little bit of, um, 
uh, Tim O'Reilly out here who, who likes to talk about the idea of, you know, making sure that you give more back than you take out of the system. Um, it's sort of a different approach, but a, a similar idea. Um, right. And and I, I for some reason, you know, there are some people out here I think who who do get that, um, but but many others who don't. And so in you know in dealing with people who respond to the book or in talking to people about it you know what 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 have you found at least that you think is the most effective in sort of getting people to recognize the the importance and of recognizing how much luck played a part you know i was very uh struck by two speeches i remember uh hearing in 2012 during the political campaign that year one was by President Obama, uh, the other by Elizabeth Warren, uh, they were almost the same speech. Uh, they, they told their listeners that uh, if, you're, if you've built a successful business, well, that's terrific, but try to remember that uh, it wasn't just your efforts, that you hired workers, the rest of us paid to help educate, you ship your goods to market on roads the rest of us pay, paid for. You you were protected by police and firefighters that we hired. And you enjoyed so many other uh, various benefits of the American free enterprise system that, that helped you succeed, that you should just reflect on that and, and recognize and acknowledge that your part of the social contract is to pay forward so the next generation coming along enjoys the same chance to succeed that you did. You know, if you'd been born in Somalia, uh, things wouldn't have turned out so well for you. And and the difference between Somalia and here is that we've had centuries of very intense investment in, in the kind of environment that lets you succeed. So the, the striking thing about those speeches was that uh, people didn't hear that message. What they seemed to have heard was the president and, and uh the the Senate candidate telling them, oh, you succeeded? Well, you didn't deserve to. You have a lofty position. You're a fraud. You don't really merit that position. That was not the message of the speeches, but that's what people seem to hear. And so I've, I've been kind of experimenting with, with how to frame the message in a way that would, might make it easier for people uh, not to hear what's not clearly not intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I and I've stumbled upon what seems to me like a, a simple but really revolutionary uh, framing exercise. Uh, don't tell people that they were lucky to have enjoyed various advantages. Don't 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 say that. If you say that, they will get angry and defensive. Yeah. Instead, just ask them in a neutral way. Can you think of any examples of lucky breaks you enjoyed along your path to the top? It's amazing. That question doesn't kindle anger or resentment. Uh, people think about it. They seem to find it an interesting question. When they think of an example of a lucky break they enjoyed, their eyes light up. They want to tell you about it right away. Then in the act of telling you about it, that kindles a memory of another break that they, they, they've thought of. They tell you about that, too. And then three or four minutes into that conversation, they're saying, well, why aren't we making this public investment or that public investment? It's just a dramatic different response. So I think I think we could launch these conversations more effectively, but uh, we just don't give much thought to how to do it. Yeah, no, that that's interesting. And I mean, obviously, you know, you talk about, and you use that example of those speeches and they talk about the roads and everything and, um, you know, especially when we're talking about, you know, internet and entrepreneurs out here that are, that rely on the internet, the internet 
is is an example of sort of a public investment that that has had you know massive uh, you know uh, success and, and economic benefits and social benefits obviously, um, but you know one of the things that I've noticed too is that you know with that even there are many people um, who don't even know the history of it and don't even recognize right. it and actually think that you know the internet is sort of a private construction of you know Comcast and AT and T or, or whatever, um, <laughs> which. It's an interesting rewriting of history, um, and so you know I'm I'm still sort of wondering like, you know, specifically to people out here, kind of you know what is you know what is the story to be told? I guess. You know, I I think one thing I've also noticed is if you'll ask a successful business person to 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 think about uh, how things would have turned out. For him, usually it's a him. Uh, how would things have turned out if you'd been born on the south side of Chicago? Uh, mm. You know, some will say uh, preposterously that they would have succeeded just as uh, as as much uh, as they have succeeded, just by pure dint of, of effort. And and maybe that's true in some cases, but on average, that's surely not true. And I think most people are, are humble enough to recognize that. And, and that's a good way to launch that conversation too. You know, you can point to Deval Patrick. He was born on the south side of Chicago. Uh, he, he went to Harvard. He became a successful business person. He, he later was elected governor of Massachusetts. He, he succeeded on a, a, a quite grand scale, but He's the first to acknowledge that uh, except for a couple of lucky breaks he had, except for a teacher who took a particular interest in his case and a scholarship he'd got gotten to go to a prep school in New England, uh, he never, ever would have emerged from that environment nearly as successfully as he did. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if if you're kind of framing it as luck, which actually, you know, a lot of, there's there's been a lot of discussion out here um, about kind of privilege. And I think maybe luck and privilege are kind of scratching on, you know, subjects that kind of make people defensive because it kind of yes. speaks towards, you know, deservedness and and you know, and I think that I think that self-awareness that is required to understand that, you know, one's success is not 100% just, you know, everyone's not starting off in the, with the same resources right. um, is is very humbling and and a little bit scary when you don't realize that you have privilege. Right. Yeah, and I think people uh, may imagine that if they acknowledged that they had uh, a leg up, that mm -hmm. their achievements would somehow seem less legitimate in the eyes of others. But I think that really uh, overlooks uh, how bitterly competitive the marketplace actually is. There are plenty of people who right. had advantages who didn't achieve much of anything. So in addition to having a good start, you need a lot more than that to really have a good chance to succeed uh, in, in the most competitive arenas, the ones that you're talking about where the yep. rewards are biggest. And so I think, uh, yeah, we, we, can, we can urge people to relax a little bit about that. And, and, the, and the research is very encouraging. You know, if, if, you, if you tell somebody that you had a few lucky breaks along the way, they don't think less of you as a result of that. On the contrary, they like you better. Uh, who would you rather have a, a drink with? The guy who insists he made it all on his own? Uh, uh, you know that person's claiming more cre credit than he's possibly legitimately entitled to. Uh, or, or the person who said, yeah, I worked hard and, and uh, I, I, 
I've struggled to, to learn something useful to, to offer in the market, but uh, if it hadn't been for this or, or that lucky break, I wouldn't have been nearly as successful as I've been. I, I'd have, have dinner with that second guy in a heartbeat. And, and yeah. the way you succeed now, uh, you don't succeed all on your own, uh, e even if, if, if you're in a deterministic environment. You've got to be part of a team. Everybody wants to be part of a high-functioning team. But members of teams like that uh, don't want just anybody to join their team. They, they want somebody they, they feel they can trust, somebody who won't uh, serve his own interests when, when no one's looking. Uh, and, and the guy who claims credit for everything that, that uh, good that happened to him, maybe that's not a guy you want to have on your team. So relax a little bit. What we know is that when we induce people to feel grateful for the, the, the situations uh, in which they've succeeded. Uh, they feel happier. Uh, they feel more generous toward others. Others like them more. Uh, there's no downside. Uh, there, there's just uh, only good things that happen if, if you accept the fact that in addition to working hard and being good at what you do, you had a few breaks along the way. Yeah, there's this sort of relates a little bit to a, a topic that, that has come up a lot recently that in, in a variety of different areas that I've been thinking about more and more, which is this idea of, of um, sort of people or companies like pulling up the, the drawbridge behind them effectively. So mm -hmm. um, some people sort of after they're successful seem unwilling um, to sort of extend the same courtesies that, that they had to, to become successful and uh, sort of actively – um, do that, uh, try and block that, you know, often for sort of anti-competitive reasons. But I, I think I sort of see the same thing here where I could see some people, um, you know, sort of being unwilling to, to, to do that or wanting to take all the credit almost to avoid having to help, you know, the next guy succeed. Right. Yeah. It, it's a complicated process. Uh, uh, in the frontispiece of the book, I paid $500 to use a sentence from an old essay by E.B. White. I thought I was going to get it uh, for free because it was published in the 30s. I figured, well, it'll be out of copyright by now, but they charged me $500 for it. And I'm I'm glad I, I ponied up because uh, uh, the sentence is very simply says, luck is not a subject you can mention in the presence of self-made men. <laughs> and and it just so captures this attitude, uh, and and the attitude is is not one that serves people well. It makes them less happy. It makes them probably less successful. Uh, and if if they could just be coaxed into relaxing a bit and thinking a little bit more broadly about their situation, uh, I think uh, everybody would be better off, including them. Yeah, and I do wonder if, you know, someone takes a, a wider view of success, you know, luck's role in success, it kind of makes the failures a little bit easier to bear as well. Um, sure. You know, you can put in all the hard work, but, you know, and I definitely know people that have worked hard, um, but for one reason or another, it didn't succeed. And, you know, it's, that's sometimes just how it goes. And it doesn't mean that you're a bad person <laughs> or you're bad, but you know, it, it kind of gives me the wherewithal to, to try again. And I'm on my fifth startup, um, you know, through the start, through, uh -huh. through the cycle. Um, well, fifth startup that's made it past, I think a failure. How's that? <laughs> Cause there's, there's been so, a whole bunch of projects that I've built and tried to launch and, and utterly just threw away cause they were, they were awful. Right. Um, but you know, having the resilience to, to build things, um, and have them fail 
kind of requires a little bit of humility um, and understanding that, you know, like you don't have 100% control um, over the outcome of all the things you work on. Um, That's right. Yeah. I, th I think if you're, if you're really sensitive to the fact that uh, external conditions matter as well, that then it's easy to pick yourself up and dust yourself off after things don't go your way. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's a fine line. Like I, you know, you don't want to be a fatalist, I guess, or, or kind of completely existential about the outcome of the companies in which you're, that you're working on. Uh, oh, but, uh, oh, I think, I think the idea uh, that people who succeed are likely to, to downplay the role of luck is no, is no mystery. I mean, look, uh, yeah. think of a person who imagines herself as the captain of her fate. Uh, mm -hmm. And then someone else who, who thinks, uh, well, the world's a random place. I'm, I'm going to get buffeted about by events. Uh, who's more likely to succeed in a tough world? I think the first person. Uh, hmm. If you think you're in charge, you're yeah. going you're gonna to be more likely to uh, expend the effort and take the risk to, to make something happen right. than if, if you think it's all just a, a draw out of an urn. <laughs> and, and it's not just a draw out of an urn. <laughs> you know, you really didn't. Yeah. You need to do a lot to make something happen in this world. I, I tell students who want to succeed, become good at something, become an expert at something. But, uh, you know, the experts on expert knowledge debate, whether that takes 2,000 hours or 3,000 or 10,000, there's, there's a lot of argument about that. But nobody yeah. says you can do it in a week. You know, it's a lot of hard work. Deliberate practice is difficult. And yeah. without that, you're not very likely to succeed. Yeah. And, and there's, um, you know, I, I also wonder how much of this, and, and I don't know which direction this goes, if or if they just sort of feed on each other. But, you know, there is this sort of, and, and this certainly goes beyond Silicon Valley, but just thinking specifically about Silicon Valley, the sort of, you know, cult of the the successful founder, right? I mean, you know, they get, you know, big profiles and covers of magazines and are the sought after speakers and everything. And so, you know, we sort of reinforce this idea that, you know, it's all because of, you know, this brilliant founder that this mm -hmm. company exists or, or was successful. And, you know, and, and that's, uh, you know, I understand the reasons and the incentives behind that and sort of, um, you know, it's, it's a nice narrative, but I think that that also reinforces the idea that if only, you know, you were as brilliant as, yeah. you know, this individual who founded <laughs> this company, you too, you know, could have could have created a multi-billion dollar, uh, you know, Internet startup or something like that. Exactly. Yeah, that that's right. Yeah. I mean, um, are there any exercises or, or games that that we can use to kind of train ourselves to understand the, the importance of luck? I guess for me. Um, I love poker, and I feel like poker has done a good job of teaching me to understand that I can have the best hand going into, you know, the final card, and that my opponent could have one card that would would allow them to win this yeah. game, um, and I'm okay with that because I played I played the entire hand the way I would play it, um, but there is kind of a degree of chance that kind of comes sure, into it. Sure, sure, um, yeah. Are I there other I... things that, yeah. <laughs> You know, there are books uh, stressing the importance of resilience. And I yeah. think the, uh, the idea there, uh, among others, is that, uh, you know, you're not always going to have a successful draw on that fifth card. Uh, but the people who who play smart and, and 
learn what the odds are and don't make foolish choices uh, are going to do okay in the long run. But but you have to be prepared to take the long view. Uh, that and that means losing part of the time. Yeah. If if you uh, think think you're going to be in every hand and win, uh, <laughs> you're in the wrong game. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, I wonder too if there's if there's something. You know, does it work if you if you point out bad luck, right? I mean, again, like I think you could find you know lots of people who've you know run into trouble here or there who who will you know they'll be quick to chalk that up to to bad luck, um, but you know they they like to take credit you know full credit for their for the successes, um, but but any failure gets you know they can easily point to bad luck. Is there a way to sort of you know flip that over? You know, get them to yeah. admit the bad luck first. We we know there are ways of steering people's attention in different directions, and, and some of them are non-threatening. Uh, I had a very able research assistant working with me on this project, uh, uh, and that was pure luck that she came uh, by and, and asked if I needed help. And so she was just the right person to do, do the, the part of the task that she ended up doing. But one, one thing she did for me was design an experiment just to see whether prompting people to reflect on the fact that uh, good fortune had been part of their story, made any difference to how they felt and how they behaved. And, and here was the experiment she came up with. She, she asked people to describe a good thing that had happened to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and then one, one group among them, she said, now give me three things you did that contributed to that. So they listed personal characteristics like skills they had or hard work they did. A second group, she said, uh, list three factors external to you, things that had nothing to do with anything you were or did that contributed to this good thing happening. Happening, And here people credited partners or, or others who had helped them or external events of some kind. And then a control group, a third group, she said, just tell me a good thing that happened to you. Never mind why it happened. And all three of the groups uh, got a bonus uh, at the end of the experiment. And she said, you, you're, uh, you're now free to donate some fraction of the bonus, anywhere from zero to 100 percent of it, to one of these three charities. And she gave them three charities they could choose among. And the ones who had listed external causes for the good thing that had happened were 25 percent more generous than the ones who had listed things they had done. And the control group fell midway in the middle. And there's been, uh, we've discovered a, a huge literature uh, inducing people to feel gratitude for, for uh, things that have happened to them. Uh, those people are healthier as measured by objective symptoms of phys physical health. Uh, they're, they're have, they have better relations with other people. Uh, they're more generous to other people. They're more willing to pay forward for the common good. There's a whole a laundry list of good things that happen when they're induced to realize that they have something to be grateful for. Uh, if if you're thinking about something that went wrong for you and feel, feeling angry and disgruntled about it, uh, all those things turn up worse for you. So yeah, I think just relaxing and focusing uh, on the fact that uh, the whole world wasn't stacked against you, that, that you had you know, a few things break your way is a very liberating thing for people. Yeah. One of the, you know, one of the, the things that you talk about in the book is, um, you know, use the example of the, um, 
the expense of sports cars, basically, on on you know good roads versus versus bad roads. Um, and well, actually, why don't I let you describe that? Because you'll you'll describe it better than I I will. I yeah, what the the latter part of the book, I I try to address the con- concern. Uh, I'm, look, the the problem is we haven't been investing in maintaining the kind of environment that lets people who don't have a good start in life uh, have a decent chance of succeeding once once they they grow up. It's going to be expensive to repair that deficit, and I think one of one of the 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 problems you run into is that people say, "Yeah, we ought to do that, but I don't want to give up any of my money so we can afford to make those investments." Uh, I, they think it's going to make them unhappy if they if they pay more. But and and I think that's a natural thing to think. Uh, you know, if if you think about paying a little more in taxes, you think that's going to hurt. Uh, why? Because you know that paying a little bit more in tax means you'll have less money to spend. And all the times you can remember when you had less money to spend, you were less able to get what you wanted. Uh, uh, what you don't think when you're you're thinking about how taxes would affect you is that if your taxes go up, the taxes of people like you are also going to go up. And so if you're if you're a successful person, the things you want, those special things that there aren't enough of uh, that are in short supply generally, how do you get those things? You have to outbid people like you to get them. You want you want a house in the hills with a view of the bay. Uh, You got to outbid people like you who also want there's a limited number of sites that offer a convenient view of the bay. And if you're paying a little bit more in tax so that we can increase financial aid to, to poor kids to go to college and people like you are also paying a little bit more then your bidding power in the in the quest to own a house with a view of the bay isn't affected one iota by that so the the specific thought experiment you mentioned was 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 one that describes two parallel worlds in one uh, the rich pay a little more in tax the extra tax revenue is used to fund uh, better maintenance of the roads. And so in that world, people at the top of the income ladder don't have as much money. They can afford to buy only a Porsche 911 Turbo, $150,000 car. <laughs> in, in the low tax world, uh, the, the, the revenue shortfalls mean the roads are riddled with foot deep potholes, but the extra disposable income the rich have enables them to buy Ferrari Berlinetta GTs, uh, a $300,000 car. Who's happier, the the rich guy in the second world driving on pothole-ridden roads or the rich guy in the first world uh, who's driving his Porsche on well-maintained road? It's a a no-brainer. Basically, uh, the Porsche has every feature that matters already. Uh, You spend an extra $150,000 to upgrade to the Ferrari. You don't get much for for your money, and especially in a world where the best car was the Porsche, it would be just as exciting to drive it as it would be to drive the Ferrari in the other world, even if the road quality was the same in each, which it wouldn't be. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the reasons why uh, I, I brought that up is because there was recently, and I don't know if you, you saw this, but there was a, a New Yorker article uh, a few weeks ago that, that basically talked about how a bunch of you know the ultra wealthy, uh, both in Silicon Valley and Wall Street, were uh, there were a bunch of them who were sort of like uh, preparing for the apocalypse, more or less. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and, they're and, the survivalists, uh, right? Building, building uh, 
yeah. really elaborate bomb shelters. Right, <laughs> right. Like the, the bomb shelters or islands or, or, you know, getting citizenship in New Zealand and, and all of this this stuff. And, and, you know, one of the comments that somebody in the article made, which I thought was right, was like, you know, if these guys, instead of, you know, spending all this money on that actually spent money on the reasons why we might be facing yes. you know, the, the end times, maybe that would be a better investment. <laughs> um, and it, it sort of struck me as, as that the same argument that you're effectively making in, in the book. Um, and I wish that, that, you know, those people out here sort of recognize that, that fact in, in terms of how they, you know, decide how to spend their money. Right. Yeah, I think people, uh, and and this is a natural error, uh, people just do not appreciate the fact that how we feel about our circumstances is so heavily dependent on context. Uh, you know, all the income growth has been going to the top, and so people at the top have been spending more year by year. But the fact is, they're not they're not getting much bang for those dollars. Uh, the 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 weddings in Manhattan uh, at the high end uh, are several million dollars in total expense. On average, in Manhattan, a wedding now costs seventy six thousand dollars. In the U.S., overall, average weddings are thirty one thousand dollars. And in inflation adjusted dollars, in nineteen eighty, the average was only ten thousand dollars. Nobody thinks people getting married today are happier because they're <laughs> spending three times as much as before. In fact, there are, there's evidence that the, the more people spend, the more likely they are to get divorced in the, in the next years. So if everybody spent a little less, if all the mansions were a little smaller, all the diamonds a little smaller, all the parties a little, little bit less lavish, everybody would be just as happy as before. So uh, just to play a little bit of devil's advocate, I know what the argument from some people out here would be, which is, you know, effectively that, you know, many of them think that they would, in, in those situations, they would know how to invest that money better than, say, you know, giving it to, to the government and that, you know, their investments will be, you know, creating the next big you know, company that creates the next big economic boom or, or, or something of, of that nature. And they don't trust the idea of giving it to the, to the government in particular. Yeah. I, I got something that ought, ought to make those people really happy, which is the, <laughs> the, the policy proposal that I offer at the end of the book, which is to scrap the income tax altogether mm -hmm. in its place, adopt a much more steeply progressive tax on your total consumption expenditure each year. So you'd, you'd report your income to the IRS the same as you do now. We could simplify that a lot, uh, and that would be good too. Uh, then you'd document how much you'd added to your savings stock during the year, the way we do for 401k accounts and other similar retirement accounts. The difference between those two numbers, your income minus your savings, that's how much you spent during the year. And that amount minus a big standard deduction would be your taxable consumption and the rates would start out low, but as you consumed four million, five million, six million dollars a year, the higher the higher your consumption total, the higher the tax on the next dollar you spend. Uh, and if you don't like paying tax, don't pay it. Just put it in an investment <laughs> account uh, and and watch it grow. Now, of course, if you take it out later to spend it, you'll pay tax on it then. But mm -hmm. the the main reason people stay, save at that level is not not so they'll have enough. Uh, uh, under ordinary circumstances, it's to, to have a cushion in case everything goes wrong and you'll have it. 
if everything goes wrong. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's interesting. And how have people responded to to that proposal? What, what do you what what do you hear in response? Uh, I I don't hear anybody rushing to introduce a bill this year <laughs> to adopt this tax. But you know that this this is a proposal that's been advocated on both sides of the political aisle uh, several times. Uh, when we have our next fiscal crisis and are looking for ways to to make the budget balance again. Uh, this will be on the table, uh, and I, I expect it will be the best of the options available. It, it's an option where everybody wins, uh, and it's because uh, at the top, if all the people at the top spend a little less now, the, the, the frame of reference that defines how they feel about what they have shifts accordingly, and they're just as happy as before. Is there... Again, playing devil's advocate a little bit, is there concern then in that situation if you're decreasing consumption even at that end, that then harms you know the the you know who, the people who, or companies who would be the recipients of that consumption? Yeah, that's a fair question, and and so I think that's why uh, I don't recommend phasing this in all at once. Mm -hmm. You you'd you'd vote this law into effect. Uh, and phase it in on a gradual timetable. And, and the effect of, of doing it that way would be that you would gradually reduce the share of spending that, that uh, is devoted to consumption and increase the share of spending that's devoted to investment. So we'd be spending more of the GDP percentage-wise on investment goods, a little less on consumption goods. Uh, but the extra investment would cause GDP to grow faster, and in the end, we'd actually be consuming more, not less, even though it, it would be a smaller fraction of the GDP. Right, right, right. That makes sense. Interesting. Um, so I think we're we're beginning to run out of time here, but uh, this was a really interesting discussion. And so I, I guess... Do you have any, you know, sort of closing thought or closing thoughts, I guess, that you would you would give to people, especially out here in Silicon Valley in terms of thinking through this stuff and understanding, you know, why it's actually important for them to, to recognize, um, you know, how much luck there was and why that's important? You know, I, if I had a limited amount of time and attention uh, uh, at my disposal, <clears throat> at my disposal, I would tell people to keep it simple and just ask their friends uh, to, to tell them about examples of lucky breaks they may have enjoyed uh, in the past. Uh, at the very least, you'll hear some interesting stories if you pose that question. And, and you may launch a conversation that, that goes in interesting directions for sure. Great. Yeah, no, I think I think that's interesting. Be, I'm 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 kind of curious to see if if there's more discussion around this because as I said, it's it's something I've brought up in the past and um you know, and and I've spoken to a few people about it as well, but I was I was really excited uh when I when I saw your book come out and and that it it fit right into to this kind of discussion and I'm I'm still hoping that that it inspires more discussion especially around here. <laughs> um uh, as as it goes forward, um, but uh, thank you very much for for taking the time. Yeah, yeah. And... What a what a pleasure to chat with you, and and nice to reconnect after all these many years. Yes, yes. And and thanks again for for letting me uh, stay late <laughs> to, to finish finish that exam. Um, great. Uh, and uh, uh, this was great. And and thanks everyone who's listening. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with uh, 
with another podcast. Thanks again. Bye. Bye.